welcome to episode 168 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and this is the podcast that sticks closer than a brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I feel I have this strange sense of deja vu right now. Yeah, it's only you and I that sense that, though. Nobody else knows all of this amazing subtext that's actually brought us to the place where we're at right now. Yeah, I have this strange sense of deja vu right now. It's strange. I have this strange sense of deja vu right now. So <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying Here's a that. lesson in amazing podcasting. Yes. I tried to set that bit up and Jesse was like, I'm going to take a drink of my coffee right now. So we, uh, this is now attempt number three. I think this is the most times we've had to like retry to do a podcast. So the first time we did this, probably we got about 20 minutes in, we were rocking affirmations and denials. And I discovered that I had neglected to press record on my side of the audio. So we had to start over and then there was a, moderate family crisis that had to be addressed and now we are starting over a third time on a second night so let's do this yeah it's okay this is trinitarian i feel really good about the third take (laughs) i feel like you just became a heretic of some sort and i'm not sure which heresy it is yet but why don't why don't we jump right into some affirmations and denials everything's already lost it is at this point the last episodes. We, we can't go any further. Yeah, we can't go any further off the rails. By it's the true. way, before we actually officially start with some affirmations and denials, I went back and listened to the portion that I just recorded, which is just me. And I forgot how ridiculous it is to listen to just one side of a conversation. <laughs> I, I rarely sound intelligent when there's actually two voices that you can hear. But when it's just mine... It just sounds absolutely insane. It's even funnier if you listen to just one portion of a recording on a podcast, but you listen to the part where the person, the other person's talking because you get like silence and then out of of nowhere, it'll be like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's, it's funny. But if you cut that out, like a lot of podcasts cut out that second, it sounds really like artificial, like... It's like monologue with no interaction, monologue with no interaction. So that's the price you pay yeah, for that's all of was. the mm-hmms and yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. So there it is. All you get people is authenticity with us, yes. straight up. Yeah. So one other sort of like preemptive affirmation that I have, there's this uh, yeah, celebrity it. in the reformed world who recently joined our Facebook group, and I'm really honored to have this person on. Oh my word. It seems like this person actually joined Facebook just to join our Facebook group and it's you. And I'm excited that you're in the group now. It's kind of rocking my world (laughs) that you're on Facebook. Like I don't really know what to do with it. Um, I know you've had like a sort of like an underground Facebook profile to do some things with like fast God stuff, but to have like a real actual Jesse Schwamm Facebook profile, I'm not entirely sure how to react to that. Listen, you and me both. I I definitely am excited to be in the group. I've really had a fun time already interacting with people. I'm trying to figure out all of the Facebook culture and to figure out how to behave. And that sounds bad. I think I can handle myself online, but you know, it's all the little <laughs> nuances of interaction. There's yeah. There's culture. There's tradition. There's 
like right ways, I guess, to reference things. And apparently memes are a big part of that. So I'm still learning, but yeah, I've, I guess I'm, I'm in at this point. I got I don't know. I, I feel like a different person. It feels like yeah. a new birth of social me. Yeah. You know, the way that you show everyone online that you're super chill and like not angry or aggressive at all is you actually type in all oh, caps. Oh, please tell me. You type in all caps <laughs> and it makes you seem like it seems like you're typing in like New Testament Greek. And so you seem really, really righteous okay. and sanctified. So make sure that when you're okay. dealing with people that you're typing in all caps, especially uh, when you're having like a good conversation with someone. Yeah, that sounds like something I'm, I'm definitely going to give a shot. Yeah, I like it. I, I so, need all the help I can get. Thank you. Yes. So why don't you kick us off with some affirmations here? All right. So I love that our podcast is straight up nerdery a lot of the time. So sometimes we're talking about Greek. Sometimes yes. we're talking about maps or weather. And so this is right within that frame. So what I'm affirming is a gift that I received recently. And it is a game, despite maybe the title. And it's called Math Dice. So the beauty of this game is it, it's super simple. It's just five die. And basically what you get is two 12-sided die and then three six-sided. You roll the two 12-sided and then you multiply the numbers that are on the face. And then the goal is to roll the other three, the six-sided ones, and then to use any kind of arithmetic, division, multiplication, addition, subtraction, exponents, to then arrive at the target number, which was the product of the two 12-sided die. Now, I realize, like, if you... This is actually, I think, would be a really great game among people. I've only played it amongst myself because apparently I'm very lonely. And <laughs> when you say words like, hey, want to play math dice? Not a lot of people say yes. So <laughs> it's been just me, but it's... it's. I think this would be great. I'm, I'm affirming it because it's super fun. It's really simple to play, but a lots of fun to have. And especially if you have kids, I think, that are in grade school that are learning math, it's just a really fun way to have like all these fun perpetual puzzles. And what a great way for parents in particular to kind of, so to speak, come down to the level of their children as they're learning this and go through the same type of problems in real time that they're experiencing outside the classroom. So I'm going, I'm yeah. an unashamed supporter and affirmer of Math Dice. I think it's super fun. Yeah. You know, when I was in uh, to sort of connect math and dice <laughs> together with each other in a, so, so a totally a totally different nerdy way, when I was in uh, high school, I played a Dungeons and Dragons type game called Rifts, which is sort of like a techno magical version of it. But, you know, dice are a big part of those kinds of games. And I remember a, a group of my friends were playing and we were talking about how we didn't understand how uh, certain elements of math, you know, like the classic trope is like, where, when am I ever going to use this in real life? Like, when am I ever going to need to use trigonometry? Right. And so we were, I was the game master, which is like the person who's setting up all the contacts and you determine how like different non-player characters react and the scenarios they go in. And somehow it came up that the, the, the animal or the beast that my the party was fighting was a certain distance away, but it was also flying, and so it was up in the air. And there was a question about whether or not the gun that the person was using was actually going to be able to reach it. And it was like this realization where I was like, this is when trigonometry comes in. So it was like, learn your trigonometry, folks, because you're going to need it someday when you're playing nerdy role-playing games. 
<laughs> I'm glad you said that at the end because all I'm thinking during this example is this is exactly the kind of thing we talk about in our podcast. I love that your demonstration of here's where you can practically use mathematics was still <laughs> in a completely fantasy related game. Yeah. The answer was that his gun could not reach the dragon or whatever it was he was fighting. And the whole the whole party got wiped out because he miscalculated whether or not he could reach it. And it was it was pretty epic, actually, uh, actually that it went down that way. The, I was going to say, those are actually pretty high stakes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of a real world situation where you would actually use that. I guess. I don't know. Like trying to figure out how much rope you have if you need to like zip line down from a building to the ground, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. At the risk of going further off track, um, might I relay something that that makes me think of? So I use this phrase, which I'm pretty sure is probably not my own, but I just think it's hilarious. And, you know, in Lord of the Rings, the creature with the wings, the Nazgul. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're going to say next to, and I love every bit of it. Have we talked about this? We might have. I routinely, somebody's like, what's the distance between these two points, I'll be like, you know, it's two miles as the Nazgul flies, which oh, like is great because either it causes mass confusion and judgmentalism on the part of the person listening because they realize you're a super nerd or the person immediately knows what you're talking about. is like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Your wife's not in the room with you, but I know that wherever she is, she just rolled her eyes. So, yeah, that's factually correct. Yes. She's like, yeah. what just- all right. So she- how about you save us? Yeah, so mine is uh, slightly more spiritual. <laughs> uh, it involves a little bit of self-reflection, uh, I think. Uh, I'm affirming okay. the, ninth, the ninth commandment. And the reason I'm doing this, I don't want to get into the details of exactly what figure I'm talking about or uh, what my tentative conclusions are, but there's a relatively well-known controversial figure a relatively well-known controversy that I've been kind of revisiting. It's not the EFS controversy, if anybody's wondering. And I'm not changing my position, but I'm sort of reevaluating what I thought a particular figure was saying or may have been saying. And so I'm affirming the Ninth Commandment because sometimes it's really hard for us to recognize that like, we need to go back and reevaluate something we've read and, and may need to rethink a conclusion we came to. And the reason I'm saying this is, you know, I was having a conversation online with someone today and I said, you know, I hate to say this, but I may have been wrong about what I thought this person was saying. They may have been saying this and I thought they were saying this. And they said to me, kind of half joking, like, well, why do you hate to say that? And I said, not for any real sanctified reasons. Like, I hate to say it because I'm going to have to go back. If if my conclusions now are right, I'm going to have to go back and explain that I was wrong and do my best to try to like find the ways that I've propagated the wrong conclusion and like contradict those or, or contraband those. So I'm affirming the ninth commandment because it's important for us as Christians. And I think especially for Christians like you and me who are, you know, we're not like big names on the internet, but like we have a, we have a platform, we have a podcast that people listen to for better. I hope the more often than not, or worse, people take what we say seriously. They, they take what we say and they, it influences them. So we have a responsibility to really think through the things that we've said. And if there's a reason for us to reevaluate something, to do that hard work of doing it and potentially to acknowledge that we were wrong about something. Right. I mean, I see this as one of the really wonderful outworkings of following Jesus Christ closely. And that is when Christians can say, 
I've reevaluated or I've listened better to what this person is saying and the ability in some ways to abstract the person from the the position that they're holding. There is absolutely a time to call out heresy and that's always important. There's also a time to listen and to always be willing to listen almost like anew. If somebody comes with a, a revised perspective or a revised heart in something, the Christian is always inclined, I think, toward what is the loving behavior. And that loving behavior is always to offer the chance to be heard again. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there does come a point where you you have to say to someone who's propagating what you think to be false, where you have to say like, all right, there's there's no more opportunities unless something something happens, something changes. There's no more opportunities for you to continue to try to convince right. me. Like there's a point where you cut off someone you perceive to be a false teaching and no longer allow them to, to try to convince you. But if you have a reason to go back and reevaluate, or if you have a reason so, something happens and you now have a reason to think you may have misunderstood, I absolutely think that as Christians, we have an obligation to seek, you know, the ninth commandment is fundamentally about preserving uh, truth as it applies to how we interact with each other. And so if you have a reason right. to think that either your understanding is not correct of what somebody said, and and especially if you've publicly stated about, made a statement about it, or if something changes in a person's theology where it seems like they may no longer believe what they did at one point, um, then you have an obligation to investigate that. And this is where it gets to be tough. And I've, I've had to do this before. So it's not like it's the first time I've ever had to do this, but it gets to be tough when you've made a public statement. I really do think you have an obligation to go back and try to track down the areas that those public statements have been made and issue some sort of corrective statement if you have the ability to. Right. I totally agree with that. I would go as far as even to say that in Christianity, there is no permanent cancellation culture. That, like you said, if there's a change of heart, if there's a change of mind, if the Holy Spirit is at work, then there is a natural obligation for us to, again, listen again or come with fresh eyes. But there are times when we say, like, well, enough is enough of this same stream of thinking or conversation. Right. But it, when somebody comes forward, I think stepping forward and saying, well, I, I want to be heard again in a different way or I've had a change of thought on this. And I like your idea of, I think, which I think is just generally good behavior of really trying to understand what somebody's saying. Like that sounds kind of like where you're at yeah. is it's, we, we can hear something and sometimes we'll meditate on it or ruminate on it and we'll think, you know what, maybe I didn't understand this as well as I thought. I think that is a wonderful frame of mind to take with almost any argument is to, even if you disagree with it, process it, set it aside, and then maybe even come back to it and say, does it mean the thing I thought it meant in the time when I originally heard it? What has changed? Have I changed? Has this person changed? Right. But all that is just really good behavior, especially it sounds like for online interaction in particular, where a lot of it could be divorced or abstracted from the actual like sense of what somebody's saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we move on to some denials? What are uh, what are you denying this evening? All right. So this is pretty much a just me ranting denial very briefly, but. I don't know. Let me ask you a question, and it's okay if there's nothing that comes to mind, but has there been anything that's happened to you recently where you've thought, I can't believe we still do it this way? Like, how are we doing it this way in the day and age in which we live? Anything like that happened to you recently? Uh, I'm sure there probably is, but nothing I can think of off the top of my head. So the thing that just like just happened to me before we started recording was I, I live in a rented space, and so oftentimes I'll get utility-related information or inquiries, but they don't really want me. They want the landlord. So right. often I will just ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> and this was happening with my water meter. 
And finally, I got a message that was like, we were just going to shut off your water if you do not call us back. So I was like, all right, I'll call them back and we'll yeah. see how it goes. Yeah. So I call them back and they tell me straight up that I'm going to be on hold for 35 minutes. And I was on hold for 35 minutes just to talk to somebody. That's terrible. So I could schedule time for them to come. <clears throat> How are we doing it this way still? Like, shouldn't I just be able to go online and select from an availability of different windows and just say, hey, come change my water meter? Yeah, you know, I have some personal experience with phone systems because we use a computerized phone distribution system where I work. And it is so much more ridiculously complicated than it needs to be as far as how calls get routed to where they go. And it's really hard because... There's so many little factors that play into how long a person is on hold at any given point. But yeah, it is it is insane how many times you have to still wait on hold to do something simple or to like schedule a simple appointment. I love nothing more than when I can just go online and book an appointment like on a website, like a well-designed right. website. And, and, you know, like medical scheduling, you, you can't really always do that. Sometimes you have to really have that person who knows like the doctor's schedule or what you're being scheduled for. But for simple things like a, like a meter check or a utility check, it should be really straightforward. That was my thought too. And I want to be clear. They were super friendly. They're really helpful and it's not their fault. I don't know what their staffing's like. Like they're doing their jobs and they were really, really great to me. So yeah. that was all fantastic. But what's funny is I had a sense that like, of course they can tell how long I've been on hold and Right away, like it recognized my phone number, so it asked, it prompted me, "What is it that you're calling about?" So I, I just said the meter thing. So it recognized, it was like, "Oh, are you you're calling about a meter? Is that correct?" And I was like, "Yes, yes, it is." Yeah. And so when it got to the the guy, I sensed that he's probably taken this type of call like a million times already. And what was so funny is it seemed like he felt the need to overconvince me that the meter be need to be replaced, and I was just like, "Yeah, whatever, man. Like, I'm yeah. totally down." But he would, I would, he would say. So you're calling to schedule the meter replacement. I was like, yeah, whatever you have, you know, we can make it work. And he was like, so your meter needs to be replaced. And I was like, yep, I understand that. And he's like, well, it is from 1998. And I was like, yep, that's fine. Yeah. Just, they almost <laughs> don't know what to do time. when you're agreeable. You know, I found that. And, you know, it, it <laughs> I, I um, once in a while, I'll do this goofy thing in the reform pub where I'll go live on Facebook and I'll just like, I'll have my phone like in the harness in my, my computer, like my, uh, car and I'll just go live and it's just like me driving like I'm not looking at the screen I'm not <laughs> interacting with the screen it ju it's just a goofy thing I do once in a while and it's funny because there's always that guy that will listen that will like watch the video for like 15 or 20 minutes while I'm driving home from work or something and at the end of it they'll be like what you're not actually going to do anything but one of the things that's funny is Sometimes when I go grocery shopping, I put it on before I go grocery shopping and I stop to get dinner at like a fast food restaurant. So like one one night a week, I eat Taco Bell or something silly like that. And it's funny because I I make a point to be super polite to fast food workers because my first job, I, I worked at McDonald's. I worked in the drive through. It's a terrible job to have, especially like in the winter. You're stuck like putting your hand outside and in, in and out, but you can't wear gloves because you got to cut money. Like it's just a terrible job to have. It's great for kids to have like a first job, but it's not something you want to do long term. So I make a point to be super polite. And it's funny because then you get people who are like watching me do this on live video and all of a sudden you can tell they're like super convicted because they're not polite to fast food workers. And it's funny because everybody's had that experience where like you 
go to McDonald's and you you ask for no ketchup on your burger and they give you extra ketchup or something like they screw something up. They forget to put something in. And all you got to do the next time you go to McDonald's is politely say, uh, last time I was here, there was a mistake on my order. And I would like you to provide me with a free meal in order to make up for the inconvenience of the mistake on my order. I have never once in 10 years of doing this. And I learned this because I worked at McDonald's and I learned how it was that that uh, customers who ended up getting free meals for management, how they did it. Literally not once in the 10 years since I've been doing this have I ever had a manager at a fast food restaurant go, no, we don't really do that. Usually they're like, oh yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to compensate you with a free meal for it. But like, if you're rude about it and you're like, I hate this place. I hate you. You're stupid. I hope you die and give me a free meal. They're <laughs> oh, going to tell, they're going to tell you to pound sand and not give you a free meal. So, you know, just be polite to people, right. just be nice to people. But it is really funny. Cause it's like, they don't know what to do when someone is just courteous and polite and making a reasonable request in a polite fashion. They like, don't know how to handle that. It's almost like it's the Christian thing to do, the loving thing to do. You want to be countercultural? Yeah, that's great. Be nice to people after you've been on hold for 35 minutes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're right about that, actually. That's it's, countercultural. It's not just that you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. It's just people, I think we said this before, my conviction is the same as yours. I started in retail. I started on the front lines of customer service. Everybody should have that experience once in their life because we'd all just treat each other a lot better. There'd yeah. be a lot more mutual respect. Yeah, for sure. All right, so hit me with a denial. So I'll keep this brief. Uh, there's a little bit of a backstory, but I'll keep it brief. I'm denying onions, okay? So um, Ashley and I, uh, we, <laughs> okay. uh, we're limited on time. And anytime you have to make a decision between, you know, I need a little bit of time back. Time and money are kind of like interchangeable. So, so sometimes you can gain a little bit of time by spending a little bit more money. Sometimes you can save a little bit of money by spending a little more time. And one of the ways that we save time by spending a little bit more money is we utilize a bot, like a box meal service. Like we use every plate, but there's a bunch of them out there for two or three meals a week. And it just saves time because all your ingredients are all put together. So I don't have like a reform brotherhood coupon code to give you, but every meal, every plate is great. If you have the discretionary income to do that and it saves a lot of time because you don't have to think of a recipe. But tonight I made the, I made the recipe and I was in a little bit of a rush because I'm trying to get ready to do the show. But after work, I got to cook dinner and then we eat and this recipe, uh, it was, it was sausage, like uh, pork sausage, rice, and then some vegetables. But one of the things it called for was an entire onion to be sliced up and cooked with the, the um, sausage. And then you eat it with the onions. It's not like you cook the onions for the flavor and then you throw the onion, like you're supposed to eat the onions. But it was a whole onion between the two of us. So each of us ate a half wow. onion with the meal. And I went back and looked at the instructions after we got done. And I was like, yeah, it says to use the whole onion. So like that was a lot. That was a big egg onion. It was a lot of onion and it was just too much. So <laughs> maybe, maybe tomorrow I won't feel the same way about onions, but right now I'm just denying those things all day long. Uh, I kind of have a feeling that you might feel even more strongly about this denial tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I can already feel I have gastroesophageal reflux disorder. I can already feel the extra like acid in my throat right now from the extra onions. Yeah, onions are no joke. Is this one of those things though where like some people when they eat sausage, they really love to have those caramelized softened 
kind of fried onions, sauteed onions. Is that what the attempt here was? Uh, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. I, I think maybe the instruction card missed a step where it said to like only use half the onion. Because, like, a lot of times, you know, they ship out ingredients, and they ship them out. They're trying to keep them fresh, but they also don't know how long they're going to sit in your refrigerator until you use them. So they could probably ship out half an onion, but it, when they cut that onion, you know, it violates the integrity. It's going to it's gonna uh, go bad faster. So a lot of times they'll ship you a whole onion, but then they tell you to use half of it. So I feel like maybe the card just, eat, like, missed that you're only supposed to use half of it. Like, there was a, a typo on the card or something. I don't know. Or maybe I missed it multiple times when I looked at it. But it wasn't good. It was a lot of onion. Since this is, like, the deja vu episode, do you ever hear what we're talking about and just think, I can't believe we record this and that people actually listen to it? Like, my favorite part of this episode so far, by far, is you saying it violates the integrity of the onion. <laughs> I mean, it does, like the structural integrity of the onion, right? No, once no. you, once you break that, that skin, the onion rots faster, right? It, it, no, it, you're right. You're absolutely, here's the thing. You're absolutely right. I just think that was a pretty like epic way of saying something. It's just like the onion will go bad. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I don't ever say anything. I'm like a Puritan. Why say something in two words when you could say it in 10? Yeah. That's true. That, that should be the tagline for this podcast. Yeah, there you go. Reform brother, honor, honor everyone, say it in as many words as possible. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. I yeah. affirm that. We need that on a t-shirt. Yeah, we, we need a lot of things on a t-shirt. We need somebody to collect all the insane, crazy, wild things that we've said and somehow amalgamate them and put them on, this, on shirts or multiple shirts at this yeah. point. We should get like a Puritan version of a t-shirt, which is just covered in words from like a single sentence. Yeah, what I would like to do, if you're in the Reform Brotherhood Facebook group, I would like you to come up with a Puritan-esque tagline for our show. So like one of those one of those that's like concerning reform theology and also spiritual family and including the difference between this and that like something <laughs> epic and long that's a tagline for our show. I love it. Somebody get on that. Yeah. Why don't we actually get onto our show uh and we're doing question yeah, cast. Speaking of getting on. Yes, this is question cast again. We got a couple of doozies. So how about we get to it? But before we drop a couple voicemails, why don't you remind everybody, because I need reminding, what is the phone number where they can leave us a voicemail question? That phone number is 607-444-2767. And that spells out... Bros. Bros. So, bros. Jesse, why don't, we, why don't we get on to the first question? All right, here we go. Voicemail one. Hey guys, this is Billy calling from Arkansas, and I just had a question about uh, y'all's thoughts on the law gospel distinction and its place in uh, Reformed preaching. Um, right now I'm drinking a Lost 40 stout. Uh, they're called the Nighty Night. It's delicious. So yeah, I guess that's it. Cheers and amen. So I love that Brother Billy has thrown this question out to us because if anything, it just gives me an excuse to shamelessly plug 
something, the podcast that you're listening to right now and give another advertisement for the whole reading series that we're doing. We're working through that book, Reform Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. And so much of what we said and we've read so far really centers on his question of law and gospel distinction and its place in Reform Preaching. But what I like even better than the question is that he's actually asking what our thoughts are regarding the distinction between law and gospel and its place in preaching. So how about you go first? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, on one level, this is one of those questions that has like a really simple answer. Um, the law gospel distinction is not something that uh, you can really have reformed preaching apart from the law gospel distinction, right? So there is this weird quarter of reform theology that I actually think is kind of an overreaction to some things that wants to position the law and gospel as though it's some sort of like sub-reformed doctrine or it's a, it's a Lutheran doctrine. Right. But, you know, when you look, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to this, but there's a an article on the Heidelblog.net, which is R. Scott Clark's website, and he has, you know, probably five different quotes by heavy hitters in the Reformed tradition. John Calvin, Zacharias Ursinus, who was the primary drafter of the Heidelberg Catechism, Caspar Olivion, um, you know, Theodore Beza and William Perkins. And Beza actually says this, he says, ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources and abuses which corrupted and still corrupt the uh, Christianity. So what Beza is getting at there is that failing to properly distinguish between the law and the gospel is part of what makes Rome wrong. The, the reason right. that the Roman Catholic Church slid into the error that they uh, that they slid into is at least in part because they confused the law and the gospel. Right on. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? Oh, sorry. I thought there was more there. I was getting all stoked up for. No, where there'll be more, but we'll, we'll take a little break for me. <laughs> I got to go take some tums to take care of this onion breath. <laughs> and yet again, we cut to possible slogans from a Reformed Brotherhood. Yes. Oh, there'll be more. And also possible sponsors for the Reformed Brotherhood. Oh, yeah. Well done. Well done. Yeah, of course, I'm going to agree with you on this. I mean, this is one of those things where understanding the law and the gospel properly is really the the key to Christ centered living and to preaching. What I think is maybe maybe this is not a distinctive with respect to how I think, but I find it a little bit unique in that I've grown away from trying to measure out or weigh out in a sermon or as we're speaking about the gospel, well, how much of this is gospel? How much of this is law? Am I getting them in the right proportions to one another? I think what we need to focus on is preaching salvation. Right. And that when you preach salvation, you're going to get both of them and they come into consummate unity and harmony with one another. And of course, you cannot preach salvation, salvation by Christ alone, which of course was one of the main tenets of the Reformation, without getting at the same time, I think, a really good measure, a balance of law and gospel. Because we present Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law for sinners under the law, who right. vicariously took their law breakings and our deserved judgment upon himself, and then died a righteous sacrifice to God upon the cross for the unrighteous. So I think we, some of this we get caught up because we're a value to people and because we have a penchant and turn of mind to really try to assess all the nuances of what we're saying and the arguments. And again, are we being fair in our representation? 
and we just need to focus on salvation through Christ alone. When we explain that, we will naturally have to come to terms with balancing out the law and the gospel without being unnecessarily worried about making this distinction. I think it will come about naturally when we have a biblical understanding and we approach salvation in a way that the Bible speaks of it. Yeah, and you know, the the law-gospel distinction, um, although it may seem like kind of an auxiliary point, it actually is really fundamental to what it means to be properly and classically reformed, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the reformed position, um, and, and I say like, the reformed position, capital capital T, capital R, the reformed position, is that prior to the fall, God uh, entered into a covenant with Adam, and that this covenant with Adam was graciously given in that in that God was not obligated to extend to Adam a covenant which would grant him the blessings which the covenant of works granted, but right. the terms of those of that covenant was a covenant of works. So God offered something to Adam uh, in in return for his fulfilling the covenant, which included perfect perpetual obedience, as, as the Westminster um, standards indicate. And so when we look at that, we talk about the covenant of works, we're talking about the moral law primarily, and, right. then, and then some positive law, some laws that were added on top of that moral law. When we talk about the, the post-fall covenant, we're talking about the covenant of grace. Well, that's the gospel, right? So the, the pre-fall covenant was if you, if Adam, if you accomplish A, B, and C, right, if you live according to God's moral law, and if you do not uh, eat of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil, at some point in the future, when you fulfilled all of these commands with perfect perpetual obedience, God is going to reward you with immutable, permanent righteousness and the status as the son of God, who is the co-regent of the universe. Right? right, but Adam fails, and so the post-fall covenant is that Adam, if you will trust in the promise that I've given you that a redeemer will come, then I will give you all of those blessings because that redeemer will fulfill the covenant you failed and will obtain those blessings for you. Right, so if we deny this law gospel distinction, um, or as the Federal Vision does, if we confuse this law gospel distinction, and I'll talk about exactly how they do that in a second here. If we deny or confuse that law gospel distinction, then we actually erode the foundations of covenant theology such that we're not really we're not really adhering to to reformed theology anymore. Right. If we if we um, say that all the all there is is grace, all there is is gospel and say that somehow prior to the fall, the covenant of works wasn't actually a covenant of works, but instead was a covenant of grace. Um, then we have now kind of lost the law and the force of the law. We've become practical antinomians. And if the flip side happens and we deny that after the, after the law or after the fall, there's, there's gospel, then we essentially become legalists. If we still have to work for our salvation, we become legalists. And where the federal vision goes awry on this, and there's some debate and some discussion about who exactly holds this and how they hold it. But Doug Wilson, for example, will say that um, had Adam succeeded in his probation, he would have done so by faith and, and that there's no one who is justified in God's sight any other way besides faith alone. And so he's wanting to say that before the fall, uh, Adam's, gra- Adam's covenant was a gracious covenant. What I think he's trying to say, if I'm being charitable, 
uh, and gracious in my reading, he's trying to say that God didn't have to give Adam this covenant and give him any promise of a reward or anything like that. That that the the terms of the covenant are voluntary on God's part, and so they're they're gracious in some sense. But what he ends right. up doing, or what I shouldn't say, what Doug Wilson does, because I'm not I'm not 100 convinced that he does this anymore. But what what the Federal Vision does, some of the more extreme Federal Vision opponent uh, proponents will say, or like Norman Shepard would say, is that the terms of the, cov- the the post-fall covenant are essentially the same as the pre-fall covenant. And that means that a person may be entered, may enter into the covenant graciously, but they stay in that covenant and they obtain the blessings of that covenant by means of their faithfulness, by, by means of their choosing to remain in the covenant, whether that's by good works or by consciously staying in the covenant. There's all different ways that different federal vision proponents do it, but they confuse this law gospel distinction, or a lot of them flat out deny the law gospel distinction distinction. And that's where we see things like either the covenant of grace becoming a covenant of works or the covenant of works becoming a gracious covenant that doesn't have a legal element to it. They, they flatten those things out. And that's why they get accused of being monocovenantal, because even though not all of them explicitly deny a, uh, a plurality of covenants, Doug Wilson, for example, affirms that the, the terms of the covenant prior to the fall were different than the terms of the covenant established after the fall. There's a practicality or an implicit denial of those differences when you say that the the covenant before the fall was entirely gracious and the covenant after the fall was entirely gracious. It forces you to ask the question, well, then what's the difference? And I'm not sure that they have a great answer for that. So this distinction between law and gospel is not just a question that comes up in preaching. It's not sort of an esoteric or an auxiliary doctrine, but it really gets at the heart of what it means to be reformed in this distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. As I see it, that is one of the great advantages. And I, I like the way that Brother Billy phrased the question because he's asking about reform preaching in particular. And I think this is where you're going to find it in balance. You're at least going to find both parts and how they interact against right. and with one another. It's like a, a fine stew with all the ingredients interacting to create some kind of like really beautiful taste, some really rich experience. Right. And I think that what you just described in kind of contradistinction to the Federal Vision view that is the remedy, actually, for shallow evangelism or shallow sanctification. Unconverted church members, rampant or unguided mysticism and a lack of church discipline is actually in the contrarieties of law and gospel. The law and the gospel are different, but they're inseparable friends, to say it right. kind of in a different way. Yeah. You know, the, the law supports the preaching of the gospel, and it reveals the meaning and the glory of the cross. And the gospel, which saves from the condemnation of the law— is a thing that should send redeemed people back to the law as a rule of life under grace. And I think we both talked about how at certain times we've seen pastors often inadvertently emphasize one over the other. Right. And so what that means is sometimes, you know, to the unconverted, the pastor must be sure that they explain that they are under the law and have no hope of self-righteousness or work salvation before God. They must show them that the transgression of the law so they will know that they are sinners condemned under it and that their repentance is needed because they are a lawbreaker before God. But at the same time, you've got to be communicating to the converted as well or those who are experiencing that weight and are being converted by the Holy Spirit. And I think we've talked about how many times have we heard pastors calling, like, for instance, the saints to holy living, faithful obedience to God's commands without giving them the comfort of the gospel right. on their way. Yeah, and so oh, this is absolutely. where I think... Yeah, the Reformed tradition really is among the best, I would say, because I think sometimes when a Reformed person 
who is convicted of this particular stream of theology, speaks, and they're talking about salvation, their first point of entry into the conversation is somewhat dismal. And I think sometimes for the modern evangelical, just kind of the, the standard nominal or curious evangelical, it sounds too harsh. Right. But it's really not, because, of course, you cannot have the beauty of the gospel without the hard edge of the law. And even once you are redeemed by Christ, then even that hard edge of the law becomes soft and wonderful because now there's a sense of obedience born again, not out of some kind of meritorious satisfaction, but more out of loving kindness and generosity exhibited back to God because he loved us first. Yeah. And you know, that's a good point. So one of the things, right, Tulian Chavidian is a controversial figure. And one of the things is his actual theological controversy has been overshadowed by his personal sinful scandal. But Tulian Chavidian, um, prior to all of the mess with his various affairs and, and all that stuff that's happened, he got in some hot water because he, he seemingly denied what's called the third use of the law. And, and so the, the Lutheran perspective on the law is that there God has two words. He has law and he has gospel. And so the, the first word is do this and live or fail to do this and die. That's the law. And then right. the gospel is Christ has done this for you, therefore live. Where, where the Lutheran reduction of that, I think, goes awry, and not all Lutherans fall uh, awry of this, but where it goes sideways is a lot of Lutheran law gospel preaching, the law is for non-Christians and the gospel is right. for Christians. And where reform preaching picks that up and corrects that, and this is where, where Tulian went wrong, is... And he didn't explicitly deny this, right? This is another thing where you have to kind of look at the implications of the, of a person's teaching is that the law still has a place for Christians, right? So we talk about the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is, uh, and the, the order of these is different depending on who you ask, but one of the uses of the law is to threaten and condemn uh, those who are apart from Christ, and so for the reprobate, this actually hardens them in their sin, right? It, it calls out their sin. It actually uh, sort of entices them to sin. It's just like if I say to you, don't think about elephants. The first thing that happens in your mind is you start to think about elephants or how when you walk by a sign that says wet paint, almost the first instinct you have is to touch it to see if it's actually wet. Like when we're given a restriction or a boundary, our sin nature wants to push against that boundary, regardless of what it is. And so that's where Paul says, you know, I think it's in, I want to say it's Ephesians or no, it's Romans seven, right? Where he says, I wouldn't, have even known what it was to covet had not the love, the law told me not to covet. But then the law responding or my, my sinful flesh responding to the law, covetousness is aroused in me because the law prohibits it, right? So the law serves to accuse and condemn those who are apart from Christ. The elect are those who respond to the gospel and respond to that condemnatory Uh, function of the law, it drives them to Christ where they find salvation. And so then what's called the third use of the law kicks in for the Christian. And more or less what it does then is it now shows us how to live a righteous life. So in the first use of the law, the righteousness is held up in front of us. And we see that we can never, 
We can never live up to it, and it, it terrifies us, and it accuses us, and it condemns us. In the third use of the law, what we see is now the Holy Spirit has given us the power to live according to the law, albeit imperfectly, and it gives us this perfect pattern by which to, to actually live the righteous life that we have now been granted in Christ. And so sanctification is this process whereby through faith, the Holy Spirit brings us into greater and greater conformity into Christ. And the law doesn't give us that conformity, but the law shows us what that conformity looks like. And then there's a second right. use of the law, which is more or less, it's a, it's a universal moral law that restrains evil. It's not really germane to this conversation itself. But if you lose that third use of the law, whether you want to or not, you slide off into a sort of practical antinomianism. If the law is no longer for Christians, then who's to tell me that I can't lust? Who's to tell me that I can't steal? Who's to tell me that I can't lie? Because the law is not for Christians anymore. And so there are certain streams of Lutheranism that fall uh, prey to this. Uh, New Covenant theology can fall prey to this. Um, and when I say New Covenant theology, I'm talking about that as a, a theological discipline. So you think of... Um, John Piper, in a certain sense, falls under this. Tom Schreiner, um, sort sort of that Baptistic, not not sixteen eighty nine confessional, but a total distinction between the, co- the new covenant and the old covenant kind of a perspective. They fall into this sort of theological antinomianism that takes different forms, but it can be really damaging. So this law gospel distinction and a fully orbed reformed perspective of the law gospel distinction is not that the law is for non Christians and the gospels for Christians, but that the law serves different functions. And some of those functions apply to Christians in a particular way. Right. So in other words, the law is for a good, both pre and post conversion, right? It is an active part of what God wants to do in our lives, both before he regenerates us. And then of course, afterwards. And I've heard people make the argument. You could infer certain things. If you throw out, if you abrogate the law altogether, you could infer certain things. If you want to embrace all of the teachings of Jesus in the way that he gives them to us. For instance, how he elevates the idea of what it means to lust. However, the law is still necessary because all of those, all of his teachings are derived from that law. But again, the law provides that direct, explicit, very clear and distinct edge, which we still need. It is still the basis of moral behavior. It just changes with respect to why we're able to obey it. And that in itself is an amazing testimony of the power of God. Because when the human heart by God's power is turned from stone into flesh and then embraces these truths, not again out of some kind of need to behave, but out of a desire to be gracious and generous and loving toward God in a way that's won over by the law and not burdened by it under their, the weight of some kind of performance, then that is an amazing testimony to change. And that change can only come from the outside. It's transcended. It is not self-help which brings us into embracing the law with love. It is only God himself. So how amazing that God would not remove the law, but would change the way in which we interact with it and the way in which we use it and the way in which by using it and embracing it, it gives him glory. Yeah. And just a little, a little minor side point. We'll have to come back to this, I think, in a different episode. I actually reject the idea that Jesus elevated the law, right? So the the common uh, interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is that there are certain laws which which God gave in the Old Testament, and then Christ actually intensifies those. And the common example is, you know, in the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to commit adultery, but then Jesus intensifies that by saying, like, you're not even allowed to lust at a person. And I actually don't think that that's an accurate way to read the Bible. So even within the Ten Commandments, right, we have the first nine commandments, right? So we have 
uh, you know, God is the only one to worship. He He's the supreme God. Only only worship him. Uh, the second commandment is only worship him the way that he is commanded to be worshipped um, and, and, and worship him the way he's commanded to be worshipped. The third commandment is honor God's name and all the ways that he's revealed himself. And then the fourth commandment is worship the way that God or worship on the, the, the time that God has commanded, right? And then we get into the fifth commandment or the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth and ninth commandment, which has to do with how we interact with each other. And then you get to the 10th commandment, which is we talked about coveting earlier. And what does it say? Don't covet your neighbor's property. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, right? So we have a reaffirmation in a certain sense and an internalizing of the prohibition against adultery and the prohibition against theft, Right. So even in the Ten Commandments, we already see that the the law of God extends to our internal motivations. And that's where the law operates differently for Christians than it does for non-Christians. A non-Christian could conceivably, except for the first four, we can talk about the second table, could conceivably obey outwardly all of the uh, fifth through, through tenth commandments. Right, conceivably, or fifth through ninth commandments, they could conceivably uh, never dishonor their parents in an outward fashion. They could conceivably never commit an, an act of anger or murder. They could conceivably never steal something. They could always tell the truth. Um, they could always—I'm uh, I'm missing one here. They could always be uh, honest. You know, they, they could they could do that out outwardly, but they can never fulfill the tenth commandment because that extends to the inside, right? And so the the law shows us how to live, but it also demands that we live righteously in our internal thought life, even in the Ten Commandments that's present. And so where the third use of the law comes in, and this is where the, right. the Christian... Yeah, I don't think there's... Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I was going to agree with you. I don't, I don't think there is like a difference in magnitude. I do think there's like a difference in intensification of expression of the heart of God as right. Jesus expounds on what those mean, but yeah. it was always present. You're right. But there is certainly like an intensification of the way in which he's trying to reveal the heart of God, because we have these stiff necked people of which I'm one who want to take it at the, the lowest common denominator without really being concerned with the heart of God. We're more concerned with just tell me what rules I need to follow. Right. Yeah. And so that's where the third use of the law comes in. Why it's a blessing for Christians is because now we actually can obey the law in the intention of the law, not perfectly, but we can now not only not lie about our neighbors, but we can do so with the right motivation because God has given us that new heart. We can now not only right. not commit adultery, but we can do so with the purity of heart that God demands because he's given us that clean heart. And so the Christian life is an increasing growth in not only the external conformity to the law, which should be growing and increasing. We should be coming more and more conformed externally to the law, but there's also a matching increasing internal conformity to the law that's almost more important, if not more important than the external conformity. So it's important in Reformed preaching as a whole to be able to utilize both the law and the gospel, because if you're not calling Christians to increasing holiness, you're missing an entire part of what it is that Christ does for his people. And that's really, really key. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the things that we've said that maybe on this podcast has been a little bit more controversial. It's more just because of the words we choose, but we're trying to emphasize a point. We've spoken about how, and again, this is going to sound a little bit brash to some people's ears, how the Christian life is try harder. It's yeah. try harder 
under the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's not this passivity where we just hope that God is going to do some amazing work in our life and crush all the large boulders into soft sand between our toes, but that we must actually struggle with our own behavior right. and constantly reach out to God under his graciousness to ask that he might not necessarily remove us from the struggles that we have, especially with sin, but that by his power, he might help us to overcome them. But we still have to fight. Right. And that fight is reflective of the law, that the law still stands. Right. But that we obey it for different reasons than we did before. But this is where it's, if you have a pastor that can, is striking this balance well, that when you come into the Lord's Day and you're sitting under his preaching, that you're feeling this almost equal weight of the gospel is this weight that forces you to your knees. And then the law is also this weight and I'm using these almost in opposite ways to prove a point or make a point, is is this way that is a, is a warm blanket. Like the law should be a warm blanket to us now. Right. It really should because it's emphasizing that godly behavior looks like this and that it's possible for us to achieve it in some measure, not perfectly, as you said, but certainly in a way that honors Jesus Christ. Actually, there's a great honor in struggling through the law and obeying God and seeking his power and his guidance and his love as you force your way through it. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we, uh, why don't we move on to the next question? Yeah, let's do it. Hey brothers. It's, uh, uh, super early in the morning here. This is Nick, uh, calling from, uh, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I'm just pulling up to my school here, Tyndale seminary, um, for an early start to a day of classes. Um, I, uh, I have a tendency to ramble, so I'll try to be succinct in my question, but uh, no promises. I won't be uh, beating the 19-second record that I just heard on the most recent episode. Um, so in my community, we've had uh, <clears throat> just some some conflict come up, and part of it result, uh, revolved around uh, discerning uh, the spirit. And uh, um, yeah, so that's basically generally what my question is, is... Uh, we have some people in our community saying that no one should ever tell someone else or, or limit someone else in their discerning the spirit or, or relying on the spirit and what they should be doing. Uh, and then the leadership uh, basically saying that someone can't just come in and, and decide that they are going to control things because they believe uh, the Lord or the spirit uh, told them that they should be able to do that. Um, so I guess, yeah, uh, as a leader, uh, a small L leader, I guess, uh, in the church, uh, how, how would somebody go about discerning someone else's, uh, interpretation of the spirit, um, or, or the validity of that, um, and, and managing conflict that results from that, uh, yeah. I'm sure there's a million different ways to approach this question, but uh, yeah, uh, feel free to even call me back if you want to clarify it. Again, this is uh, Nick, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. All right. So here's another question with what? How much time do we have left? <laughs> Seven and a half minutes. <laughs> Buckle up, yeah, folks. Awesome. So brother, yeah, brother Nick, 
dropped what I think is a pretty exceptional question, and this could go a million places, so we'll try to keep it pretty brief, but I, I think this is something. Hasn't every Christian wondered about this? And he's speaking specifically about how do Christians discern the Spirit, but I think in equal part, and perhaps the more important part of his question, at least from my perspective, is how should Christians manage conflict around this idea of discernment? So let me start us off really quickly with my perspective on why it is to begin with that the Spirit is given to Christians. So the Holy Spirit is given to Christians, of course, to transform us by the Holy Spirit's teaching, making us into God-focused thinkers and equipping us to discern God's will and make decisions accordingly. So we do this by rational reflection, of course, in our life situation, helped along by wise and godly advice, which I think is pertinent to the question, within the parameters of the Word of God as established. So the idea to begin with, that there's some kind of superior path in matters of guidance that is passively accepting, that is like, all I want to do is accept some kind of internal promptings as they come into my mind and that are separated from godly conformity, that is a mistake. So I don't know if that's exactly where Nick is going with this. If this is a sense of, you know, how many times you've been in a situation where somebody tries to play like this Trump spiritual card? Well, God told me this. Or the Holy Spirit laid this on my heart. And so this idea of the Holy Spirit is absolutely given. But one, we know that one of the marks of the Holy Spirit is unity. And second, that it always confirms uh, and brings attention to and focuses on what God has established in his word. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we're, you and I are both cessationists, right? So we would, right. uh, and maybe on different degrees, but I don't think so. We would deny that there's any sort of sense of ongoing direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. So, of course. So when we talk about discernment, sometimes people talk about like supernatural discernment, that they can just look into a situation and they just know things that they can't possibly know about the situation because the Holy Spirit reveals them to the directly. And I want to unambiguously say Absolutely no, you do not have information that is not accessible to somebody apart from some sort of direct spiritual download from the Holy Spirit. Like that's absolutely not the case. It's absolutely not true. You may think it is. I don't, I don't want to say you're a liar, but you're wrong. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, influence us and give us promptings and, and insights. And here's a real concrete example. I don't think he would be bothered with me sharing this, but if he is, I'm sorry. So, a couple weeks ago, um, you know, everybody wow. sort of heard about this big conflict that happened between Jeff Durbin and Tim Hurd from the Bible Thumping Wingnut podcast, right? So a couple weeks ago, I, I'm, you know, this was probably a month and a half ago. I'm setting up the Christmas tree, right? I'm, I'm not thinking about Jeff Durbin. I'm not doing anything. And actually, Jeff Durbin's sermon uh, series, I had his sermon series on my podcast. He's, his preaching comes up. And, you know, I stopped and I went, you know, ministry is really hard. Like ministry is tough. You and I, even doing a podcast can be challenging sometimes, but being a pastor, his abortion ministry, you know, we've talked about how much respect we have for the different work he's doing. That's really hard. And so I stopped, I prayed for him and I, you know, I just said, God, I know Jeff is a godly man. I know that ministry is hard and he's a very high profile Christian. So sometimes he takes some extra heat. So please be with him and be gracious to him and encourage him. And, you know, the, the verse came, you know, the, the myriad of verses that came into my mind is encourage one another, right? It's all over the new Testament. So I'm friends with him on Facebook. So I pause for a second 
and I send him a little message on Facebook that says, Hey, I've been really encouraged by your sermon series. I know that ministry is hard. I just want you to know that I'm praying for you and I hope you're doing well. He wrote back to me and I didn't know any of this stuff that had been going on with him and Tim with, with all this different stuff. He wrote back to me and it meant a huge, it was a huge encouragement to him to know that someone who cared about him was praying for him. Do I think that the Holy Spirit gave me some sort of divine revelation? No, not at all. Do I think that God providentially orchestrated circumstances where I would be listening to his sermon and be thinking about the difficulties of ministry and take time to pray for him? Absolutely. So the Holy Spirit prompted right. me to, to reach out to him and to communicate with him in a time when he needed it in a way that I could encourage my brother, but not in some super ooky, spooky, mystical sense, but through the ordinary right. means of grace of prayer and preaching and reading the Bible and understanding what it says about encouragement. When the scripture talks about discerning the spirit or discernment in the spirit, what it means is God is to go back to our last question. God has given us the moral law. He's given us his roadmap and his compass for what is moral and righteous living. And the way that we discern the spirit is we apply that moral law to the situations we're in. And I heard it explained to me one time, and this is when it finally clicked, is that discernment is a compass that points true north. If you have a compass that points true north and you know the bearing of the direction you need to go, you'll always get there. It's not a GPS. Right. It's not going to, you're, you're not going to be able to expect God to say to you, all right, turn left here and then go two blocks down this way. And there's going to be a homeless guy on the corner. He doesn't actually need your physical help, but what he wants you to say are these three words. And that's going to make him come to faith. Like that's not how the Holy Spirit works. It's not really how the Holy Spirit worked predominantly in the Bible. And we have no reason to think it's how he works now, but instead we have the moral law. And you know what? What that homeless person that I see on the way to work needs, he needs me to, to do good to all people and especially those who are the household of faith, right? I don't need some mystical experience of the Holy Spirit to know that I should seek to take care of his physical needs if possible, and I should always pray for him, and I should share the gospel with him. I don't need special revelation, special direct extra biblical revelation from the Holy Spirit to know those things. That's right there in the Bible, you know, on right. the face of it. Right. Yeah, at the risk of using maybe a strange alliteration, there's a difference between prompting and premonition. Right. And that's why this question is really wonderfully open-ended. There's a part of this where the answer is really easy, which is let the Word of God speak. That is the priority. It holds priority over everything, including our thoughts. And it is basically the sieve through which we should pass all of these internal promptings to make sure that they actually comport and conform to the Word of God. So in some ways, I say that's the easy answer. And it's possible yeah. that maybe where Nick is with this is maybe in the stuff that's a little bit more nuanced, which people can have all kinds of what they think are promptings from the Holy Spirit about a million lesser things that they still have really strong opinions about. So one of the verses that have been really helpful to me in thinking about this, because it can be anything from, I sense that the Holy Spirit wants us to have green carpet in our church to, you know, like any number of things that still get people fired up. So yeah. this is uh, Paul writing to the Philippians chapter one, verses nine through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. And so what has been helpful for me with respect to this idea of discerning the Spirit and helping and speaking to others who have opinions that they believe have been influenced by the Holy Spirit is you'll notice at the heart of Paul's prayer is his desire that the readers will exercise this classical virtue of discernment. And he wants them to be able to make good choices to determine what is the thing that is best. 
And what I find wonderfully comforting and super helpful is that Paul gives really an anatomy of discernment. And he points to three necessary building blocks for that. Love, knowledge, insight. And what I find is that when you're interacting with Christians and they have strong opinions and those opinions and I would say responses become unmeasured, it's generally because even if they're claiming the Holy Spirit is the progenitor of those, they lack either love, knowledge, or insight, or some combination of those. Right. And so it's this idea of that the virtue of discernment energizes, empowers the thoughtful, mature Christian life, and it brings more unity than it brings separation. And so I think when we can focus on, is the thing I'm asking for, is the thing I'm fighting for, is it loving? Is it filled with knowledge? Does it have the insight that comes through the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit? When we focus on those things, I think they can help be guiding rails, like you said, that put us back on the path toward true north. And I do believe that the Bible is the, the appropriate rule for all of life. That doesn't mean, though, it's going to tell you how to act in every circumstance, like you just said. But what it does mean is there are guidelines and guide rails and helpful uh, pinning in that moves us in the proper direction. And part of that, I think, is the person who really is concerned with discerning the Holy Spirit, I believe, will always be open to appropriate critique from a fellow brother or sister to say to them, hey, just show me or explain to me how the scriptures support what you're saying. I want to really understand what you mean. Can you point me and help me process how this is the, the biblical norm right here? I think the brother or sister that is really concerned with living in a way that honors Jesus Christ because they're walking in the spirit, as Paul says, will receive those comments appropriately, will be eager to say, this is what I'm thinking. This is the scripture that has really been helpful in helping me to discern this particular way or this path. Yeah. And you know, if someone is truly being, this is an easy test or an easy sort of criterion. If someone is truly being influenced by the Holy Spirit of God, then the Holy Spirit of God is going to direct them to the scriptures. So even right, if, exactly. even if for the sake of argument, the charismatic position is right, right? The, the charismatic position that God delivers these special words of knowledge to people, even if that's true for the sake of argument, there's still never going to be a point where the Holy Spirit says to that person, well, don't go to the scriptures though, because, because that doesn't exactly. make any sense because the scriptures time and time again, and the scriptures are the spirits the spirits work, right? So the scripture is God breathed and it's also God breathing. It's God's, God's speech to us is this are the scriptures. And so the spirit is always going to be amenable to us going to the scriptures, even if we were to grant the charismatic argument. But, but what I want to read here, you know, this is kind of like the classic text for discerning and testing the will of God is Romans 12, one and two. It says, I appeal to you brothers, therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or rational worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Sometimes uh, this takes on sort of a mystical bent that if you just worship in a spiritual sense, then and, and you don't live a, an unholy life, but you allow God to transform you, then you'll have this sort of mystical ability to understand the will of God. But if you actually look right. at the language, that's not at all what's being said. So if you're not conformed to the world, but you're transformed by the by the what? By the mystical sensation of the Holy Spirit? No, no. By the hope, the renewal of your mind, by the renewal of your thinking capacity that 
by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, right? That word for testing or discernment here is the act of holding something up to a standard and comparing it to that standard. And so what, what can we see then when we do that act of comparing something to a standard? We see what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, what are we comparing it to, to see if it's good and acceptable and perfect? Well, we're engaging right. our mind to compare it to the good, acceptable, perfect standard of scripture. And that's how we test it by discerning is by comparing all things to the word of God found in the scriptures. So if you, if you take this passage and you understand that Paul is telling you to compare what's happening to a known established standard, well, that's not some mystical experience of the Holy Spirit. It's looking at the scriptures and comparing it. Like Paul says in other places, you're rational people, search the scriptures, see if this is true. Right. So we have to be careful not to let uh, let someone who's got a different position or an unbiblical position sort of set the terms of the discussion. Because if we let someone who is of a more charismatic bent set the terms of the discussion in this sort of like sensation, sensory experience of the Holy Spirit, like I can't, you know, I can't tell the difference whether this thing that I'm feeling is the Holy Spirit is because I ate a half an onion with dinner tonight, right? Like, there's, there's this right. difference, you know, I'm going to have creepy dreams tonight because my stomach is all upset. Well, is that the Holy Spirit or is it just the weird onions that I ate? The answer is it's just no, the it's weird Charles onions Dickens. that I ate, you know? Right. Yeah. A bit of yeah, undigested something or other. Exactly. See, it's the, it's the same thing. No, of course I'm total agreeing with you. And, and I hope that I, in the position that brother Nick describes, I think it is appropriate. And I'm guessing he would say the same thing to have those conversations to say to the brother or sister, listen, I know that your concern is that we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ properly. And thankfully he's given us his scripture right. as the means of, in the rule of life. So let's go to that. Show me, help explain to me where you're coming from and how it comports with the scriptures. And again, I think that the brother or sister that's really concerned that is genuinely wanting to do that will have those conversations. That itself is a bit of a test because it'll really kind of root out the behavior that is principally selfish or self-seeking or self-serving. And again, where there's unity and love and knowledge and insight, you're going to find that we automatically are pulled back to the scriptures. Um, And I want to echo something that you said because I, I think this is just worth saying again. I've noticed this a lot recently in my own life. We need to be the kind of people that are steeped and marinated or pickled in the Word of God. Right. And we live in such a, of this time that's such a wonderful blessing where we can get access to the Word of God in nearly almost every language, almost every translation, almost every medium. And we have no excuse for really not being consistently involved in discerning what the scriptures say to us by way of just being in them. Like any time in them is good time, time well spent. Yeah. And so what I found is that the more time we spend in the scriptures and the more time that we spend praying over the scriptures and praying in preparation for time in the scriptures, the more I find that that transformation just happens automatically. Atrophy happens automatically. And so instead of being passive about that, when we go actively into the word of God by spending focused time in it, we're going to find that naturally, just like you said, that when you'll be doing other things and the word of God just inundates us. It is, that is the power and the amazing fulfillment of God's promise that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. And the truth he wants to lead us into is the scripture itself. And so we ought to spend as much time as we can in that. And we'll find that it will just by a natural byproduct, a wonderful outworking will be that it starts to transform how we think casually in an normative sense. So the ultimate purpose of God for every Christian is this character transformation and growth into the full image of Christ, which will happen 
at the time of the beatific vision, when we, yeah. when we come before him in his presence. Yeah. The Holy Spirit's work of imparting wisdom for discerning the will of God is case by case, but it's part of this larger enterprise for which our sanctification is what we call the usual name of it. And so I just want to encourage Nick to have those conversations and to continue in his own life to pursue the scripture with reckless abandon so that he and everybody else who calls themselves a Christian are able to know when it's time to have that conversation. And like we talked about, can have that almost spiritual muscle memory or have that ear towards something doesn't sound right about what's being spoken here. Or this doesn't seem to comport with my understanding of the scriptures and to be able to call it out. But until you have the paragon, something else against which to compare it, like you just said, this transformation of the mind, you, you're just walking in complete darkness. And we need to be careful about calling that out if we ourselves are stumbling in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, I think this has been the definitive, I don't even know what to call it, the definitive <laughs> math onion uh, possibly reevaluating a formal conclusion about a particular person, uh, also yes. law and gospel and discernment podcast, the definitive one of those. Yes. And is it fair to say, because you've been with me on all three versions of episode 168, this one I think actually was the best. Yeah, I think it was. It's the only one that actually is a full episode, like an actual episode. That's true. It did reach completeness or it's about to reach completeness. And before we sign off officially, why don't you remind people and myself one more time what the number is to leave us a voicemail. I just know the area code. I know it's 607. It's 607-444-2767. You know, Jesse, I actually thought about in the middle of this podcast uh, playing a prank on you and being like, oh, I forgot to start recording again. (laughs) But I thought that there was two possible outcomes. One One is almost infinitely more likely than... The other, the first outcome was that okay. you were going to say a cuss word, which I've never heard you say a cuss word. The second <laughs> Unlikely. was that you were going to stop recording uh, immediately. Yeah. And, and that was a likely candidate for an option. So I decided against that. Yeah, that's that's more likely. I think the most stressed I've ever become on this podcast, like the most visceral reaction that's ever actually been recorded in real time. Do you, do you know the circumstance I'm talking about? Oh, I know exactly which one you're talking about. Yeah, it's the time I accidentally, while making a point, <laughs> knocked over a full bottle of kombucha all over my desk. And I don't know yeah. what episode number that is, but it's out there somewhere and it's like, it there's like an glorious. outtake at the end. You can just hear me being like, yeah, I was so frustrated. I forget what I said, but I was so frustrated. Yeah. Well, you were like just running around the room going like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's extra yeah, funny. It was, I guess it was like. You have that like glass plate kind of desk where there's like a glass plate on top of your desk. So didn't yes. like the liquid start to like seep under that glass plate? Yeah. That's what made me so mad. So a number of years ago, I'm, I'm so proud of this desk because I don't know anything about woodworking, but a friend of mine helped me refinish it. And I love the glass plate because it's usually pretty awesome. So it slammed down. You can hear it on the recording. It was super loud. It was like a firework went off. (laughs) And then, yeah, it's pouring down the back of the desk and I can see it coming underneath the glass top. So I'm just thinking, the finish. Like I was just like, it's it's all gone. Set it on fire. I was so mad and all (laughs) over. And, and also like kombucha is like kind of expensive. So it wasn't like it just knocked over water. I was like, this is a delicious fermented beverage that is now... 
I'm thinking all of like the bacteria, all like the wonderful bacteria is just like eating through my finish. You're like, fortunately, let, let the whistle pigs have the whole building. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whistle pigs. That's yet another thing. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Tony, if I may say so. <laughs> uh, you may say so if you'd like. Oh, thank you. Yes. I do. And once again, I've, I want to commend ourselves on the number of topics that we fit into just <laughs> under an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, we still have to add in the recording, so it's definitely going to be longer than an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, that's true. But everyone, you're welcome. Yes. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. <laughs>